Our God is an absolutely awesome God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 and 9. Isaiah, just prior to that declaration of how awesome our God is, said in verse 26, lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these things. He brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And he's talking about the stars in the sky. Because of God's power, because of God's might, God created them. God calls them by name. He knows each one of them individually. I, I believe there are probably stars that we haven't even discovered as a race yet. Perhaps whole galaxies. And yet God knows every one of them intimately. He created them. And by the strength of his might and, the, and the, the strength of his power and the greatness of his might, not one of them's missing. Our God is an absolutely awesome God. While we marvel, though, as we, we look around at the wonders of the natural world that our God has created, that physical world, we marvel, and, and we should. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we should definitely marvel at, at the physical world. But while we do that, Sometimes we fail to marvel as equally at the power that he has provided to his children to be, to act, and to live completely contrary to the ways of the physical world that they see all around them. Why don't you think about that? This is something that Isaiah also makes very clear in a prior chapter, as, as clear as, as he made it, that God has put all these stars in place and he has this incredible power. Isaiah also, in an earlier chapter, makes it very clear that God has also empowered his children to live totally differently than the physical world around them. And that's going to serve as the focus of this morning's lesson. And hopefully, while we marvel at things like the Grand Canyon and the Pacific Ocean and the stars in the sky and all that God has created, hopefully this focus this morning is something that will also get us to marvel similarly and enjoy accordingly the blessings of possessing as we continue forward as the family of God. That uh, counter to the world around us power and blessing which God has so bountifully bestowed upon us for our blessing. We find that in Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. This blessing that he has bestowed upon us in order that we might live and work and serve and worship together in his New Testament kingdom or church can be seen reflected in a messianic prophecy, the one that we see in Isaiah 11. And obviously, 
When I talk about a messianic prophecy, I'm talking about a prophecy of the coming Messiah because Isaiah wrote some 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. And in Isaiah 11, he talks about this incredible power that God's people would have to live contrary to the natural world around them. God having created both that natural world and this ability to live contrary to it in some ways. In verses one and two of Isaiah 11, speaking of the coming of Christ, when he came to set up his church. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As we consider Jesus and what he would bring with him when he came, we would see that he would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and the knowledge and fear of the Lord, again, would be both upon him and come with him when he came. Verses three through five read as follows. His delight, meaning that Jesus delight, his will, and, and he told us in places like John five and verse 30 that he came to do his father's will, and, and we see that uh, pre-shadowed here. Verse three, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist speaking of the Christ to come. And, and because his delight was in the fear of the Lord, just as it says here in verses three through five, it also says because he delighted in God, he would not make rash judgments. He would not make rash and unrighteous judgments by what his eyes simply saw or what his ears simply heard, but he would judge righteously. He would judge righteously and, and you know when Jesus came, that was something that he commanded his disciples to do too. John 7 and verse 24, we are to judge with righteous judgment. Then we move on into verse six, where it says, speaking of his coming and his establishing of his kingdom or his church, verse six, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Brethren, <laughs> that ain't natural. <laughs> that just ain't natural. It's not. This is not the natural pattern that we see in the world around us. We don't see a wolf laying down with the lamb. And as we look at the rest of the statements here in verse six, leopard lying down with a young goat. Think of the power of a leopard. Think of maybe some wildlife show that you've seen and how in the natural they, they would prey upon the young goat. The calf and the young lion eating in the same field together. You're kidding, right? And a little child shall lead them. As we look at this idea, what God is trying to get across to us is that when Jesus comes, He's gonna empower his people 
to live differently than some of those things that they see in the natural world, to not live like the natural man. Verse 7 says, the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young ones lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. <laughs> As you read that first sentence, that's not something you're going to see on Alaska the Last Frontier, folks, I'm just saying. You don't see the cow and the bear grazing together peacefully, calmly, side by side. And if we look at the latter part of that verse, we're going to notice that they're not going to fight and bite and flee from and gore or devour one another, even though that might be the natural inclination in the natural world. But, but that verse says they'll eat together. They'll eat the same thing. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Can't imagine a lion and eating straw, and it's not physical. It's drawing a picture. It's drawing an illustration of the messianic kingdom of the church of our Lord. And it says they shall eat straw, both of them. They'll both eat the same thing and be nourished by the same food so they can live together in peace and harmony. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's the picture that we see. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, 14 through 17. He said there, he said, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Paul says, here's the answer, or better yet, in his words, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so you don't do the things you wish. In other words, when you're walking by the spirit, you don't do things like the natural world. You don't do things like that natural man. You don't live like you would see in nature, that which comes naturally. That's what Paul's trying to get across because you're not walking in the flesh. You're not walking like the natural world. You're walking in the spirit, so you walk differently. We look at verse 8 here of Isaiah 11. It says, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. That's completely, you know, you parents, <laughs> you wouldn't let your kids do this. In the natural world, they're going to die. You wouldn't do that. We're over to Katie and JR is celebrating Hannah's second birthday yesterday, and that's why I'm a redhead today, for those of you that noticed. Um, but we were over there, and, and what they had done was out front, of, out front of the house there, they had had a couple of those of you that were at the wedding will probably remember they had a couple little flower bed type places there and the grass had grown up about this high and they decided to clean that grass out of there and put some mulch down and stuff. Guess what they found in that grass? More than one little snake. And they didn't want that right there in front of the porch. Guess why? Because they've got a two-year-old. You don't want snakes playing in the grass by the two. That's just not, you don't want that to happen. But yet this picture here is a picture that runs completely contrary to nature and, and God's kingdom empowers that, what he is talking about. And we look at verse nine where he says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for, as the, earth shall be full of the, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These promises are repeated at the end of the book as well. When we read in Isaiah 62 and verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, 
and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isaiah 65 and verse 25, that's a full verse. Now, as we consider this idea of God's holy mountain, we know what that is. We know that God's holy mountain is the church that the Messiah would come to establish because Isaiah alludes to this in other texts as well. For example, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, chapter 30, verse 29, chapter 56 and verse 7, in chapter 57 and verse 13, all allude to this fact that, that this, this holy mountain of the Lord is talking about the coming church or kingdom of our Lord. And so as we go through this prophetic text of Isaiah chapter 11, we would notice that the whole point is, is that when the root of Jesse comes to establish his kingdom, he would empower and enable his subjects even those who, if they were in just the natural world, might be adversaries, he would allow them instead and empower them to become the best of friends, allies, co-workers, supporters and protectors of one another. This, this New Testament kingdom, he would empower them to live and play and work and serve together in perfect unity and peace and harmony even if in the natural world that might not be the case. What an awesome God. I wanted to get up this morning and sing awesome God first, but he really is. And we have that power. It's, it's prophesied 700 years before the kingdom comes. We have that power. And we saw shades of this in the Old Testament. We saw, we saw shades of, of that kind of, of love and, and that kind of even those who were were adversarial at times, they had that love. We, we see shades of it in the Old Testament. For example, let me just give you some examples. Uh, I'm not gonna turn there, but if you're taking notes, you'll have them. Certainly the live stream will be there if you wanna go back and check, but some examples. Just, just a, a glimmering shadow of seeing that start to occur. Moses, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse four, it says, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses said, they're just about ready to stone me. Lord, what am I going to do? Do you know what we see Moses doing in the very next chapter? In the very next chapter, we read where Moses took that very same group that was ready to stone him, and he's there from morning until evening helping them work out their problems. Isn't that awesome? They wanted to stone him. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to throw a rock at you, catch it. They wanted to kill him. And in the next chapter, Moses is working from morning to night to the point that his father-in-law has to come along, who's a priest of Midian, not a priest of the living God, and says, Moses, you can't keep doing this. You're going to, my paraphrase, you're going to kill yourself. You need to get some help, Moses. You need to take some dependable men and, and let them help. And, and again, you can read what God actually said word for word in, in chapter 18 of Exodus. We move on to Exodus chapter 32, and we see another shade of this. The people had pretty much rejected Moses. They had rebelled against Moses and abandoned him. In verse 1 of Exodus 32, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come, make us gods that will go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They're ready to just 
We don't even know who this guy is, let alone where he's gone. Come on, help us out, Aaron. Pretty much decided to <laughs> leave him up there on the mountain by himself. We don't know him. And yet, just a, that's, that's verse 1 of Exodus 32. Just a little later on, verses 7 through 14, we see this same Moses. You know what he's doing? You know what he's doing? These people want to leave him. You know what he's doing? He's praying to God for him. To, he's interceding for him. He's interceding for those people. It reminds me sort of of Jesus as he's going to the cross and he says in Luke 23, 34, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they're doing. The very ones who were putting him up there, he prayed for them. And, and I see a, a glimmer of that in Moses praying for these people who wanted to just leave him in the dust. You know, if we went up to Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, we'd see the same thing again. We'd see Moses' sister, Miriam, ready to cast Moses off. And, and we know that God struck her with leprosy when that happened, and guess what we find, Mo you get the pattern here, there is a pattern here, right? You know what Moses does? Praise to God for her. The very one who wanted to oust and replace him. In Numbers chapter 14, one through four, people are at it again. They want to reject Moses and select somebody else to lead him. Basically, they give him a very violent vote of no confidence. But you know what we find Moses doing right after that? I love this. What an awesome God. We see Moses loving, serving, forgiving, interceding for the very ones who rejected him once again in verses 11 through 19 of Numbers 14. Continue on, we see in number 16, we see Korah, Datham, Abiram, and 250 renowned men and leaders of the congregation gathered together against Moses and Aaron. We see that. And the next day it says that Korah gathered all the congregation against them. He didn't just come with the 250, he gathered the whole congregation against them in, in verse 19 of number 16. Well, well, How would you felt for you Moses at that point? What would you have done if you were Moses at that point? I'm going to tell you what Moses did. Moses prayed for him. Moses prayed for the congregation, interceded for them before God in prayer, and God honored his prayer, verses 19 through 27. You know, let me give you one more before we move on to the New Testament, because we're seeing shades of, of that lion shall lay down with the lamb. We're seeing, we're seeing shades of that love that even in the Old Testament was there. Joshua and Caleb, remember them? Joshua and Caleb, they knew the majority of the congregation hated them. They spoke up for God in Numbers 14, six through nine. And you know what it says in verse 10? It says, and all the congregation wanted to stone them with stones. We get the idea that stoning is a typical thing, right? The whole congregation wanted to stone them with stones. Verse 10, Numbers. 14. And yet, where do we find Joshua and Caleb over the next, not 10, not 20, not 30, but 40 years, where do we find Joshua and Caleb? Where do we find them? Helping, loving, guiding, serving, fighting for, giving success. It's a very group that had wanted to stone them. And, and, and the thing that comes out of this is that Moses and Joshua and Caleb 
were not, you know, they didn't show up in tights and capes. They weren't like superhuman, all right? They were not especially good or gifted or talented in and of themselves. That's not where they got their strength. You know where their strength came from? They're just humble men before God. They were humble people of God who therefore became especially good at allowing God and his love and forgiveness to work and flow through them. To the point that all three of those men, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, could work and serve right alongside those who had wanted to stone them. And you know, as we read through Isaiah 11 and we look at, at some of these pictures that are totally unnatural, by the way. I'm not sure how they uh, Photoshop. I don't know how they did it. But as, as we look at some of those and we consider this, you know, when Jesus came along and established his New Testament kingdom, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, this sort of love, this sort of forgiveness, this sort of working together, even though they might have been adversaries in the natural world, it would completely go against nature. This would become commonplace. This would become normal for all of his subjects. For example, one of the very first things that Jesus taught when he came, Sermon on the Mount, 400 years of prophetic silence, as I've mentioned so often, and all of a sudden, God shows up in the flesh, opens his mouth, first sermon recorded, and you know what he says? says this, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 45. Preached on that whole text three weeks ago. I got to tell you. When Jesus selected his 12 apostles, when he selected and appointed the specific 12 apostles that he did, it was almost, get this picture, it was almost as if he was seeking to showcase to the entire world the reality of the prophecy of Isaiah 11. Listen, putting Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector in the same small group of disciples to work, if you know anything about Simon the Zealot, extreme patriot, that's why he was called a zealot, extreme patriot. And what was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. He was a sellout. He was a traitor to his country. They were completely, it's a wonder those two didn't kill each other, to be quite frank. Except that Jesus said when his kingdom came that it wouldn't be like it would be in the natural world. You know, putting Simon the zealot and Matthew the sellout in the same close-knit of co-workers <laughs> would be like putting Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi on the same public relations team. I don't know where you are politically, it doesn't really matter to me, I'm just saying. Be like putting the most radical member of the Black Lives Matter movement in the KKK on the same 12-member jury. You would have thought that with, with, with this, this sellout, Matthew the tax collector, traitor to his people, and this Simon the Zealot, you would have thought 
that the whole mission would have gotten so sidetracked and bogged down it would have gotten derailed. But you know what? It didn't, did it? It didn't. It didn't. Why didn't it? Because when Jesus came, the wolf would lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them, Isaiah. 11, verse 6. In fact, I missed a slide. There we go. Then we have the case in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, where, again, we know the story real well. James and John want the places of honor. They come in, they try to get the places of honor when Jesus comes into his kingdom, when the other ten find out about it. They are irate. They are indignant. Do you know what Jesus did? He used his wisdom, he used his power in his words. He instructed, he enabled, and he empowered them to go from there. It was one solid group working for him, didn't he? Did the disciples go on to work together from that point on? Yep. You know why? Because the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. As I said, you won't see that on Alaska, the last frontier. What about Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas were separated to the service of God in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. They set forth on the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey, and they were gone months, months together, these two guys traveled. Some think as many as two years. A number of months to two years. They traveled together, they taught together, they faced riots together, they faced persecution together, they traveled, they, they, they went through everything together. Riots, resistance, life and death persecutions. And then they finally wind up back in Antioch, preaching and teaching in that congregation there in Acts 15 and verse 34. You know what happened, don't you? Next time Paul wanted to go on a missionary journey, there's this sharp and severe disagreement or difference of opinion between them over John Mark. So severe, in fact, that they are separated in part company, Acts chapter 15, verses 34 through 41. But to me, the most important part of that is what happened after that. You know what happened after that? You know, the Word of God has a beautiful way of working on humble and open hearts. And after a while, after a while, the Apostle Paul began to focus on the good and positive instead of the bad and negative in Mark, to the point that he finally wrote in Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proven to be a comfort to me. They have proven to be, who's proven to be a comfort to you, Paul? Well, this one and Aristarchus and Jesus called just, and John Mark. You see, after a while, even they, though they had this sharp disagreement, <coughs> Paul came to the point where he focused on the good in Mark. And he saw the good in Mark. He said, I need Mark. Matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, I want him. I want him, because he's used, bring him. 
because he's useful. The very one he'd had a sharp disagreement with. You see, that's that. That's the love of God. That's how it works. That's how it was set up to work according to Isaiah 11. When he comes, he'll have wisdom and understanding and he won't judge by what he sees and hears. And, and by the way, this will enable the, the, lion, the wolf to lay down with the lamb and it will enable the cow to graze with the bear and the leopard with the young goat. Or to quote it, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, Isaiah 11, verses eight and nine. In all my holy mountain, they will not hurt nor destroy. And you know, as I think about John Mark, as I think about Paul and Barnabas and this sharp debate and division, and then I notice how John Mark is accepted by Paul later on when he's had some time to think about it, maybe seen some good in John Mark. You know, I believe that's the key to not hurting or destroying in all God's holy mountain, Isaiah 11, 9. And I've preached on this. Looking for the good, always looking for the good and the positive instead of at the bad and negative of anybody else. As I've told you before, I don't know why this particular sermon, there's some sermons you hear that just stick with you, right? They just stay there, okay? I've told you this before, so I'll allude to it very briefly. I think it was 2017, Brother Denny Petrillo of the Bear Valley Bible Institute of Denver preached a sermon unlike anything that I had ever heard or that perspective. And he preached it on Philippians. And his suggestion was that it was possible that the whole reason the Apostle Paul wrote Philippians was for one reason, because of the sharp dispute between Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4 and verse 2, and this is kind of the way the sermon went. He said everything kind of before it led up to that, it was, that was the centerpiece. Paul was trying to solve that problem. He said, and that's why you'll find like in Philippians 2 where it talks about Jesus taking care of others first, he's, he's leading up to Euodia and Syntyche who, who are having this sharp dispute amongst them. And when he gets, Paul gets into chapter 3, he said, you know, it's possible Paul's letting them know that nothing else on earth is as important is their love for one another. And so he talks about how he forgets what's in the past and presses on toward the goal of the future and, and all that stuff he used to have doesn't amount to anything. He's bringing, he's leading up to Euodia and Syntyche. And so he gets to them and he says, help them, help these sisters. Their names are in the book of life, help them. Philippians 4 and verse two. And then what does he go on to say after Philippians 4 too? The whole section about rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Look at the good, look at the positive. He said that whole book, could very well have been written by Paul because he knew of that problem and he knew that God had the power to fix it. As I consider the power of our almighty creator, his ability to bring peace between the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the cow and the bear, the ox and the lion, I want you to, to work with me in your mind here. As I consider that, I want, to, I want to have you picture with me a few possible scenarios. I want you to consider what an awe-inspiring spectacle 
it must have been to such a warlike culture as existed in the first century in the world, when that world saw what happened on the first day of the week, when that world saw what happened when God's people came together in love and fellowship and friendship to worship the Lord their God as one. Imagine with me, if you will, for just a moment. Imagine this. Imagine walking into the worship assembly in, let's say, first century Philippi and seeing everyone from Lydia the upstanding businesswoman and seller of fine purple fabric, maybe, just maybe, seated beside one of those jailed people that were there that night at the earthquake. Consider this fine upstanding businesswoman sitting beside some of those criminals who had been there that night when Paul and Silas were imprisoned with them in Acts 16 and the earthquake happened that, that helped open the eyes of the jailer and it opened their eyes too and now they're all Christians. And they're sitting there together. And as I, as I picture that in my mind, I think of maybe the jailer. The jailer, can you imagine this? The jailer, that morning that you walk into the congregation in Philippi and you've got a couple of these, maybe possibly uh, ones that have been imprisoned and they saw the earthquake and they realized their need for God, the same as the jailer. Can you imagine this man that was the jailer that had once put them in stocks, seen, how, uh, seen to it that they were imprisoned, any, any of these prisoners, and he's coming along serving communion to some of those he imprisoned. Think about that. He's coming along as a servant and serving communion to some of the very ones who may have worn irons around their wrists that he had put on them. That's the love of God. Isn't that incredible? Think of that picture. Get that in your head. And maybe, just possibly, hopefully, seeing Euodia and Syntyche sitting there side by side as well, having accessed and accepted the love and the counsel and the power of God to overcome their difference. Then later, after services are over, seeing them lovingly work together to serve the fellowship meal, the love feast that followed the morning service. Wouldn't that just make the spine, wouldn't that make your spine tingle if you knew the history? That's what Isaiah 11's talking about. That's the love and the power that we have to think of the jailer possibly serving communion to those he had jailed. Now they're just all one, beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me in your mind the possibility of traveling through the ancient world and being in Corinth on the Lord's Day and seeing those who had once taken one another to court who had once sought to cheat and rob one another, even former homosexuals and religious prostitutes, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, mentions them all, and seeing them sitting or standing side by side with families, 
who are seeking to separate themselves from the sins of the world, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Would that do something for you? You knew these <clears throat> temple prostitutes in Corinth, they were, they were shaven, and you, you knew what they looked like, and yet here they are, converted. Paul says, such were some of you. They've been converted, and they're sitting there, besides moms, dads, kids, standing there, however they assembled together, as one. In Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Isaiah 11 says. That the kingdom would be like. The power that God would give. What about going to Rome? Check this out. You go to Rome. In the time when hostilities and public persecutions against Christians were heating up. And come Sunday morning, you decide to gather with the saints. Now, now you've got to gather in secret because it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse in Rome. I mean... One of the former emperors has had most of the Christians kicked out of Rome, all of them kicked out, but, but you're there now, and it's, you know, it's like 10 years later, and, and you're there, and, and you know there's a small pocket of the saints, and they're assembling. So you decide that you're going to go, and you walk in to wherever this place is, and even with the persecution of the emperor heating up, Some of those Christians are seated beside some of the very members of Caesar's own household, Philippians 4, 21 through 23. Can you imagine that? <coughs> Caesar's out to get you. He gonna get you, right? And yet there's members of his very own household. Paul said in his letter to Philippians in chapter four that the members of Caesar's household send greetings. He converted them, they were Christians. So they'd be in that Sunday morning assembly in Rome, and you know that they're part of the emperor's household, and yet you sit there and you pass communion to them, and you sing together, and you pray together, and you praise together, because that's the power of God. That's the power God gives his children. In a sacred assembly, or try this last one on. You know the story of Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave. He had escaped his master, Philemon, and as we talked about this morning in the adult class, slaves were completely under the life and death power of their master. If a master wanted to kill their slave, like I said this morning in the, uh, in the adult class, be like me if I had an old bookcase at home that I wanted to either burn, toss out, or cut apart and make something else out of. You could do anything you wanted to. They were property. That's all they were. So you've got Philemon, who's the master, and you've got Onesimus, who's the slave. And Onesimus escapes. He runs from his master, winds up finding Paul, winds up hearing the gospel, winds up being converted. Can you imagine attending the congregation where slave and master, Onesimus and Philemon, sat side by side, on equal ground as brothers in Christ. Blood-washed brethren, no longer a slave in their master, but two beloved and blood-washed brothers, equal heirs of Christ and co-heirs in Christ Jesus. Would that do something for you? Do something for me. This God is real. That ain't natural. 
like the lamb and the wolf. That ain't natural. How does that happen? I need to know more about this God. Look at, look at, join me here in the book of Philemon. And, and look at this for just a minute. It's really incredible. Philemon, right up after the book of Titus, not a very big book, not one we refer to a lot, but right between Titus and Hebrews. You know the story, I just told it to you, but I want to show you Paul's words. Philemon, verse 10. Paul says, writing to Philemon, again, the slave master, as it were, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Paul starts, he's my son, this is the slave, Onesimus. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. As I said, Paul had taught him the gospel. He'd become a brother in Christ. Who once was unprofitable to you. He was a runaway slave. He wasn't of any profit to you. But now is profitable. Not only is he profitable to you, Paul says, he's profitable to me. He was once worthless. Now he is infinitely worth everything to you and me. Paul said, I'm sending him back. Must have taken a lot for slaves to go back to their master, don't you think? That just ain't natural. But this morning, we ain't talking about natural. We're talking about the Messiah and his power and the kingdom. Paul says, I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart. Paul says, this runaway slave, he says, my own heart. So you receive him. Whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. For perhaps... He departed for a while for this purpose. Paul says, hey, maybe in God's providential plan, the whole reason he got away and escaped and all that, maybe this was all just the, the reason that he left was so that he could come back to you as a brother in Christ. Perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave. That whole natural relationship, like the, like the, 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 the bear and the calf and like the child to a cobra and like the sheep and the wolf, that whole natural, no, 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 no. He says, perhaps he departed that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, no longer as, as in the natural world, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul said, it's not just a spiritual thing going on here, but I'm sending back to you in the flesh. He's a brother. He's your equal. Paul says, what an incredible power our God has given us, brethren. What an incredible power. While in the world, a lot of these people that we've talked about might be adversaries, they might be more like the wolf and the lamb or the leopard and the young goat or any of those others, maybe either fighting or biting or fleeing from one another or taking down and devouring one another in the natural world. That is not that way at all in the kingdom because the love of God reverses things. The love of God changes that which is natural to that which is spiritual. You know why? Because the great king of kings, the great lord of lords, Jesus Christ, has the power to 
change our lives and our relationships always to cultivate a totally different type of relationship within the hearts and ranks of his loyal subjects for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7, let me say it one more time, isn't our God an awesome God? He sure is. That ain't natural. <laughs> but that's the picture, the portrayal of the love of God and the relationships in his kingdom. What an awesome God. If you are not yet part of his kingdom, why not? If you've never repented and turned to God for this power that he has, this power to forgive you that you can forgive others, this power to love you who were once his enemy so that you can love those who once were yours. If you've never become a part of that kingdom, it is the greatest life, I'd say, on earth. Let's just go with the universe, shall we? Because it transcends this earth. We'd love to baptize you into Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins. Love to have you part of that kingdom, that church. Or if you need the prayers of the church to maybe be stronger in your relationship in some way, whether you're the, whether you're the wolf or the lamb or the bear or whatever you are, but to be stronger and better in that love and just immerse yourself in that love and that grace, that mercy of God. We serve an awesome God and he would love to respond to your need right now as we stand and sing.